God, guns, empathy. <laughs> what would you put in your prepper bag? The moon and Mars. Why we always seem to head north. How close are we to the end of the world? Cannibals. Near future, apocalyptic science fiction. What if this goes on in the near future? And if we had a superpower in which we could feel what others felt, what would we do with it? That is Parable of the Sower. By Octavia E. Butler. Here we go. But first, why did we choose? Why this particular author? I think we've got more to say on our choice this time. I, I think because the world is in a pandemic, and at least in our country, all around the world, but it started in our country, the, the protests for finally some justice and truth in Black Lives Matter. It is a movement that has been bubbling for a long time and is finally now in a place where something might happen. I think a lot of people are feeling that, that something might happen. And you and I, in our life, death, sci-fi, have been caught up in this, and there aren't many black authors on the sci-fi lists that we've been looking at. But The Parable of the Sower is by Octavia E. Butler. She writes a, a story that as a white man, I try to read with more discovery about the culture and the background of, of this book. And I think that if I was a young black woman, a girl reading this book, it would be good for me. It would be good to know that there's a strong woman there that I'm reading about that can survive. Yeah, I love that. And actually, maybe this would be the moment to cue the 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 clip from so Wyclef Jean rap lyrics about another young black woman, Lauren Hill. I mean, he has these lyrics about her going into a, a bookstore that he frequented, and maybe he used to work there. I can't remember. And uh, that she's always picking up Parable of the Sower. And sure enough, young black protagonist Lauren who we'll talk about later, like Lauren Hill, how it must have been so inspiring to see, and especially rare, even more rare, near the 27 years ago when this was written in 1993, how powerful that must have been, which I think was not, yeah, I guess when, I can't remember when Lauren Hill, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, I think is the album, when that came out. But it was late, I want to say late, mid-90s, late-90s. And yeah, interesting connection there. Another one, it was before we come back to Black Lives Matter, I this came up, and I, I'm forgetting the name of the guy that was being interviewed. And I heard, this is, it's funny how these things all serendipitously come together, but I just was listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast this week, and it was an old one. And I'm forgetting the guy's name that was on there. Maybe it'll come to me later. I'll put it in the show notes. He And he mentions, he gets an ego, and I didn't expect this at all, because Tim Ferriss always asks like what books people would recommend or they're into. And this guy starts rattling off, again, unexpectedly for me, uh, a list of how much he loves sci-fi. And uh, maybe I'll add a bit about what he says about sci-fi in there. And he, and he mentions like Snowpiercer. And I think they bring, they talk about, well, oh, Ferris mentions Dune at some point. And I know we're both excited about this coming out. And the Foundation series. We're going to put a pin in this and talk about this later. I'm trying to forget. And, and and he mentions this author who maybe I've heard the name. And she, she's a Hugo uh, winner. Um, named N.K. Her name is N.K. Jameson, who wrote the fifth, what is the fifth season? And I haven't read those, but I was excited to, to, to hear another Black author mentioned there. Who are some prominent Black figures in sci-fi? I guess one that comes to mind for me is LeVar Burton. Yeah, as a child, I knew him from reading Rainbow. And then, of course, as Jordy from The Next Generation. I grew up on my parents. We were there with Trek, yeah. Yeah, huge Star Trek fans. I definitely grew up watching Star Trek reruns all the time. I mean, I, I was shocked to learn that the old uh, Star Trek from the, what was it, like 19, late 60s, 68, 69, 70, something like that. Yeah, okay, yeah. And I, growing up as a child, I thought it must have been like 20 seasons long because it was always on and it was just reruns. And then, the, 
Yeah, they, they really enjoyed the Next Generation, which I think was at the late late eighties. And he's got one of my my favorite podcasts, Lavar Burton reads. We love that podcast. He's a huge sci fi fan, and so he's often reading sci fi authors. And I'll have to go back and double check. I know I know he's had a, a number of Ted Chong pieces on there that we've read. Yeah, we read his uh, one of his short story collections, the one with Arrival. It wasn't even the one with what. The one with arrival in it, stories right. of stories of your life. I actually, it, okay, we're digressing a little bit, but I actually arrival was my second favorite story in that collection. My first one was the Tower of Babel. Oh yeah, yeah, I like that. One. Yeah, that was a beautiful story. It had, it had a one of those Mobius strips, strip, uh, Mobius strip plot to it. Mm. Kind of. Yeah, Mobius strip. Yeah. But that's for another discussion. Actually, yeah, but I back I, to parable I, of the sower. I, I yeah, just come back to the Black Lives Matter. So we'd say we just wanted to yeah to read a, a black author and but- well, to, it, honestly, for me to start the conversation to include that purposely as part of our discussion and uh, sci-fi world, and I guess this is the announcement of it. Where that's that's who we want to be, right. Yeah, we just want, and, and sci-fi is all about, I just like death and, sh- and sci-fi. We're trying to understand ourselves and the world better. And, and sci-fi always asks such large questions, often like so many things connect to politics. And we, we talked about Kindred. I think we chose this one because not knowing much about either, really, I think Kindred's the more famous of Butler's works, but this one's right up there, but because it dealt with immigration and kind of migration and, and different minority groups be it uh, class or maybe not the minority, we can talk about that, the majority of people who were yeah, yeah. less well off. It's the minority and, that's very wealthy. And once they get on their journey, it kind of, kind of feels like a, a pandemic story. You're trying to get safe. You're trying to stay away. You're trying to stay healthy. That's relatable in a strange sort of way to the situation as where we are now with, with the pandemic Absolutely. Yeah. Let's let me just throw out one name so I get it in there because we have read Colson Whitehead early on and had a before we started recording and had an interesting conversation about and we won't get into now whether he's is that sci fi or not. We read the Underground Railroad. And that hero's uh, journey was more intensely related with the the black experience in, with uh, slavery in the United States. And this story Parable of a Sower is about a, a period in, in the United States where social norms, morals, values just are, are crushed under a failing of the, the system that it looks like civilization is tumbling out of control. I went back and tried to find the spot where it said, this is the reason why, where Butler says, this is the reason why this is happening. And she doesn't. We just, you know, it's just one of those slow burns that is going in the wrong direction. The slow, slow burn to the apocalypse. Let's say more. Let's summarize this briefly. So we are in the Los Angeles area, and in in the year mm-hmm. 2024, we meet our protagonist Lauren Oy. Now forgetting her last name. Yeah, and she and her family live in a. So some kind of suburb, right, in a valley or those valleys that surround L.A. And I picture it like a Glendale <laughs> sort of. I don't know if, if Glendale met, met Skid Row, I guess, in a sense. And it, <laughs> things are bad. And they live, they live in a, a cul-de-sac that's walled off. It's walled off cul-de-sac with a number of other families. There's some people are selling rabbits. It's a mostly uh, black community and one white family. They keep the gates closed. They talk about security a lot. Our hero's dad is a professor who has to go out of the gated community to go to work. So that's a danger for him. And he takes the kids at a certain age, I think it's after 15 or so, out to practice shooting so that they know how to uh, protect themselves, which is one of the first kind of, what's going on here? This guy's taking these kids out here to teach them how to shoot. So that's a good hint uh, to what 
what's coming up. Other hints and related to going outside is just that they dirty themselves, right? That they, they have old clothing they might wear when they go outside the complex. They try to look like, and many people aren't wearing shoes once they get outside. And the best way to blend in is to dirty your clothes, or old clothes, and have a bit of an odor to cover up cleanliness or, or any, any positive fragrances. And they leave, many people leave armed or they don't carry any sort of valuables. They seem to carry things in sacks, if anything. Because, which is a chilling thing, water is really expensive. Whoever controls water is just squeezing all of the money they can out of people. And I think that's a thing that could happen. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely a concern these days. Let's put a, we'll put a pin in that too. Water shortage, as we talk about some of these, some of the ways in which this is near, near future. Yeah, sci-fi. So they're in this complex and things are getting worse. Things seem to be happening outside. We get that, that, that are there dangerous and we get that glimpse through uh, her brother. But 12 is really quite tall and looks older and uh, begins to sneak out and stay out for longer and longer periods of time. He wants attention when there are no rules in the outside world and, or the rules apply in certain situations. It's like uh, the Wild West. And he fits in there because he, he, he probably can kill somebody without remorse uh, for something that he wants. And uh, so one of, the, one of the things that shows us a little bit of an outside eye is that um, he falls in with a group of robbers who has stolen some tech. They don't know how to how to uh, put it together or use it. But Keith is knows how to read and he knows how, how to uh, put this together. So he forges an alliance with this group, and this group affords him some safety too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, he seems to have this. Well, and the father is a hard-handed type. He. I think he's beating the children. It sounds like Lauren, I think, hadn't been beaten in ages, right? She's, but she's, she seems to be the apple of his eye and Keith's rebellious. And so he's kind of a way to rebel and he's going out and, it, and we don't really get what he's doing. We understand that he's helping these guys because he can read. He's, ed, he's educated, yeah. homeschooled in that sense. And he can help them work their devices and do things with all these stolen goods they couldn't do before. Of course, they're getting this money, and it seems like maybe it's through violence or drug dealing because there's. And he brings it back to the mother and gives. Yeah, he's bringing money, money to the family. Yeah, they don't really, they don't really want it, but it's sort of money. Yeah, yeah, and then and then part of that fear is because there's all these other really scary groups, hoodlums, and these. Different groups of people, like the the pyros or the paints, I think, or maybe those are the same, that set places on fire just to watch them burn because these designer drugs. I'm going to have nightmares about that. Yeah, and they're set on fires. And then that's part of the escalation. I guess there's two two parts where the story escalates. One has to do with the increasing number of fires and how in some of these fires they're – they're setting a fire just so everybody in the complex goes to put it out. And in the meantime, other people come in and rob the houses of the people that have went outside for the fire. And then the other thing that shows a bit of escalation is the disappearance of Lauren's father. And he just doesn't come back. They never find him. Yeah. Gruesome moment where it seems like what they're hearing him scream or they find what they think is his arm that's been severed in this kind of... You picture that some kind of ravine, and what was it? Not too long before that, they the dad didn't let the kids. They were in a shoot practice, and there was a family that was uh, murdered and and half eaten just behind the rocks where they were shooting. And the dad said, well, "You can't, you can't come here. You can't see this." And then that kind of could have happened to him. Yeah, it's, it seems like that's, I don't know, that was my reading of it, which is pretty horrible. So this prompts this prompts Lauren to, to, to leave earlier than she'd planned, and she was planning to leave, and to, well, actually, that's not it. There's one other incident, right, before, before she leaves. She's really forced to leave. Yeah, she's forced to leave. But the interesting thing is, just, just around that time, she starts on the, the knowledge part of her journey. She wants to find out how to survive. So she's reading books about edible plants, edible forest plants. And she's created a bag full of supplies and, and things that she needs to move quickly. And she is forced to do that. 
a blessing and a curse, really, is this ability that she has because of the designer drugs, some kind of drug her mother was taking, caused her to be born with this condition of hyper empathy. So she feels the pain of everyone. You know, it's, it feels the emotions of the people around her. And there's so much suffering that, of course, she's feeling that suffering all the time. And along with that, she's developing her own, really what becomes her own religion about how the idea of change, what's the quote, everything that we touch, we change, and everything you change, changes you. Am I getting that right? Yes. She's at her baptism, and they have to, this is one place early in the story where they have to go to this church that is outside the cul-de-sac, and it's a, they actually call it a fortified church but we get a glimpse of what it looks like outside and it's pretty pretty horrible um, things aren't going well for society here she's in in the church and she's thinking this is from the idea of god as much on my mind these days i've been paying attention to what other people believe whether they believe, and if so what kind of god they believe in keith her brother says God is just the adult's way of trying to scare you into doing what they want. He doesn't say that around that, but he's, he says it. He believes in what he sees, and no matter what's in front of him, he doesn't see much. Dad would say that about me if he knew what I believe. A lot of people seem to believe in a big daddy God, or a big cop God, or a big king. They believe in a kind of super person. A few believe God is another word for nature. And nature turns out to mean just about anything they happen not to understand or feel and control of. Some say God is a spirit, a force, an ultimate reality. Ask seven people what, what all of that means, and you'll get seven different answers. So what is God? Just another name for whatever makes you feel special. She goes on to develop this idea. She talks about this all through the book. Yeah, what a great passage. Yeah. Yeah, we've all had those thoughts and feelings at one time or another, I think. Yeah. But that's not the end of the story. No. Um, right around this time, an astronaut on Mars died because there's a colony on Mars. And the, this astronaut said she wants she wanted to be buried on, on Mars, but the agency says no. Hmm. Uh, she has to come home. Uh, so Lauren talks about that. And then Mrs. Sims, this old curmudgeon, uh, has some bad luck, and then she kills herself, which I think is a symbol of the kind of people who are looking at their society, it looks like it's coming down. They know they're not going to be able to go out in the river of life to find a place other than they are right now for survival. And they got this feeling that their their place right now is in jeopardy. They might not be able to stay. Mrs. Sims. And then it gets worse. <laughs> uh, Just like Mrs. Sims thought. Yeah. yeah. And shortly thereafter, there's a series of these escalation intensification of, of conflict where there's some fires and break-in in their complex and then everyone's trying to watch out and eventually there's an overwhelming fire and everyone is forced out in really chaos. They're overrun by these pyros who are just setting everything on fire to watch it all, yeah. all burn. And, and most people of her community right then are murdered or you know, right. scattered so they you know can't find each other. Raped, murdered, right? They're witnessing all of this. And he, she flees and then goes back in the following day to collect the money that her father had hidden and weapon in several places. And she makes it back out. She's, she has some things there to help her. And of course, it's especially difficult for her not to walk out. Well, and as she's walking out, that's a, a difficult scene where there's other people who are just watching it all burn. Just desperate people have gone in to just take what Take everything. Yeah. And, and and I thought it was a powerful moment. She goes to her house, <clears throat> and there's another family there taking her stuff, right. her family stuff, and she's just going in for these specific survival things that she thinks she needs. She's got her head on. She's yeah. not screaming at him. 
stop taking my stuff because it's not her stuff anymore yeah they scowl at her because she's invaded their space their claim that's right yeah yeah so she makes it she makes it out and teams up with i don't know why i keep forgetting their their names maybe it's less important but oh, we've got harry and maybe later on maura ally and our sister jill so they're all these kind of people they meet along the way who's the first one the the older one who escaped who grew up on the street was that oh, Harry and was it sarah sarah maybe i think that's that sounds right yeah zara and, and then emory and maura were slaves on a farm, which I thought was also chilling. And it's not fiction, it's fact that there is slavery in the world right now. And they did break up a farm slavery scheme, I think last year, where they said, we brought you here, you owe us for food and lodging and this, and, and your wages are never gonna, you know, would make up for what they you know, are charging. So they. You know, have to continue working. Yeah, absolutely. People are, are enslaved in some you know, some factory life. And really just the prisoners all over the world that do some sort of labor that is, is unpaid or paid. And if they are paid, it's next to nothing. That's... The latest one, weren't, weren't they making face masks for us or something like that? Oh, yeah. A factory. Was that Uyghurs in China and a factory making uh, face masks for, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's dark. She's surviving on the road. She's Lauren, our, our hero. Our, uh, she's on her hero's journey, creating this religion out of, out of God is change. Because everything is changing around them. And she's actually working this out, talking to people about this in, in, in her group, and they're listening. So it's, I think as long as they listen to her, Hey, they're part of the group, but if they don't want to listen to what she has to say or don't believe in that, I don't think you're included in that group. You can stay until then, but then you have to go. Is that how you, you read that? So that her religion is the values that her group is going to live by. Yeah, I would say so. So let's wrap up the, the summary and dig into some of these ideas. They keep moving in this sort of, not a hunting party, but a, a group together that are maybe a hunting party in the hero's journey sense of it. They head north. They meet up with Bancoli, whose I think his sister has a farm up north. That he bought. He bought the farm. He's a he's a doctor. He bought the farm, and yes, a sister or brother are running the farm. And, uh, and that's where they're headed. So they're headed north. Let's talk subgenre. Uh, nice. Kind of, I'm, I'm enjoying this because I I'm learning about some subgenres that I hadn't always thought about. I guess it just gives me some language to talk about it. So I hadn't really thought of pulling these again from. I'll link to the show notes in uh, Worlds, the World Without End, and there's this we got a number of subgenres for science fiction and fantasy, and I'm still slowly working through Margaret Atwood's In Other Worlds, where she really makes an argument for speculative fiction and hey maybe sometime down the road we could have an episode where we just des- des- designated to a discussion about all the subgenres sci-fi that'd be kind of cool and the asteroid field you have to navigate to all the subgenres <laughs> nice yeah yeah exactly i'm visualizing yeah a bunch of sub asteroids labeled as a subgenre we could make that happen we could make that uh creative oh we could make that yeah as another t-shirt <laughs> yeah exactly very cool I got this from John Green's crash course on this book, which is totally, again, I'll link to that in the show notes, totally worth checking out. John Green is awesome. I know we've talked about the Anthropocene before, great podcast. And he says that, he quotes Butler as saying that she followed Robert A. Heinlein. Shout out to Stranger in a Strange Land. We threw seeds into the cracks of a, a sidewalk. We've been throwing throwing seeds everywhere. Don't oh, don't even forget to talk about the parable itself. So anyway, um, John Green mentions that Butler says she followed Robert A. Highland's categories for science fiction. The he had three: what if, the if only, and the if this goes on category. And Butler says. 
that parable of parable of the sower falls into the if this goes on category. So the question is, if what's this? If this goes on, what's the this she's speaking to or referencing? For me, the this is I, I just look around my own environment. You know, I, I, I have the houses around where I live have electric fences. Most of them have walls, security systems, people who will come up to you on the streets and say they haven't eaten in, in a long time. And they have a couple of kids and a, and a wife behind them. And they're coming up to you and saying, I need something to eat. If this goes on, we're going to be living in parable of a sower. And then what's next? If we don't do something quickly about global warming, if we don't meet the needs of the masses, or those of us with enough means, whoever does, rather than to help each other out, if those with means retreat into their walled complexes and their armed fortresses, and most people are left to defend in the streets, we will very well end up in this world quickly. And it sounds like you're saying we're already getting there. I was thinking about the riots in Portland and how I was just in Portland for a few days in January of, of this year and visiting Powell's books, of course, love Powell's. And, and just within those blocks, there's, and Seattle's like this too, but I was really struck by how many tents there are on the sidewalks outside of quite expensive boutiques. You're in Portland, you're in front of your favorite bookstore. There are protests, a black light matter protests going on and then homeless are crowding the, the, the streets and federal agents are uh, uh, buzzing around in cars that are unmarked is this like a perfect storm of of shit or what yeah i mean it sure seems what may what probably happened several years before we meet our protagonist, Lauren. And time-wise, that could be just about right. It's 2020. This is set. Yeah. I think we could imagine um, a world in which there's four more years of increasing issues that we're-, we're Yeah, I know that, that Noam Chomsky just about. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you're saying this is a near future subgenre? I, I think so. I think it fits in with that. If this goes on, it's, it's kind of, you could put the two together, right? If this goes on, this is our near future story. Of course, it, at some point, then it wouldn't be fiction or hardly at all. I, but it is near fiction in the sense that it's, uh, this is a definition on that, on, on worlds without end, that it's, it's science fiction takes place in the present day or in the next few decades. Elements of the setting should be familiar to the reader. And these certainly are right for us. And the technology maybe yeah. or in development. And I think that's about right, technology-wise, where we could, uh, we'll talk a bit more about that later, but there's nothing in here that's so different than in anything that exists today. It's, we could say it's apocalyptic. What about pre-apocalyptic? Near future pre-apocalyptic, if this goes on. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose there's other definitions out there, but it's not post-apocalypse, apocalyptic. It's in the, in the moment where it's civilization is ending. Seems about right. Ending, teetering. Yeah. I'm just, well, there's nothing civilized. Sounds like there's, there's a, a lack of civility inside many of those gated communities. And, oh, that, that can be true today as well. But it's certainly not civilized outside. There's cannibalism. It doesn't get more uncivilized than that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and Octavia Butler did a wonderful, horrific uh, job of describing such a place. I was scared. Did you have uh, down any of those? Made me think about it for a long time after. There's that group of children uh, that are huddled around from a severed human leg. This is no parents, no no structure, no civilization. What else are you gonna do, little kid? Right, they're like some stray dog. Scavengers. Culture. Yeah, I think you have to talk about the, the parable of the soils, which is the, the gospel, the Bible um, parable. 
A good segue to that is just the parable, well, that she has this religion. Of course, the, the title of this piece is based on that, several verses from the Bible. And in terms of a subgenre, you could argue this is, uh, in some ways, a theological work, right? Because it explores some ideas and this new religion that, that Lauren offers. Well, the parable is the sower of the seed, sometimes called yeah, the, the parable of the sowers. This is just from Wikipedia, is uh, a parable of Jesus found in the three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Speaking to a large crowd, Jesus tells of a farmer who sows seed and does so indiscriminately. Some seed falls on the path, the wayside, with no soil, on rocky ground with little soil some on soil which contains thorns, and some on good soil. In the first three cases, the seed is taken away or fails to produce a crop. But when it falls on good soil, it grows, yielding 30, 60, 100 fold. Later, Jesus explains to his disciples that the seed represents the gospel, the sower represents anyone who proclaims it, and the various soils represent people's responses to it. The first three representing rejection, while the last one represents acceptance. And of course, we have Lauren, who has her own religion, Earthseed, and she is, as the story unfolds, more and more comfortable sharing that gospel with others. And, and she has followers by the end of the story. She has disciples who are quite willing to keep her ideas going. And I bet if we went through the story carefully, when Lauren's talking about her religion, there would be the three kinds of rejections that Jesus was talking about. Um, I, bet, I bet we could find them in, in the story. Right. Uh, but she certainly does have the, the fourth kind with people who are saying that they accept it. They accept what she's talking about. Eventually. New religion, Earthseed, uh, new religion. The idea is that there might be a future uh, for humans, maybe on other planets, or certainly through, I think like you you mentioned before, the, that there's this idea of finding edible plants and seeds and new life. There's a lot yeah. of uh, hope with newness or rebirth. And in some ways that, that this earth, in some ways in contrast with, say, Christianity, Earthseed, there could be a sort of heaven on earth, whereas with Christianity and in most major religions, the it's only in the afterlife where people find, where believers find a heaven. Yeah. Also in this story is it's set in the near future and then the astronomers have found livable planets uh, that are fairly near nearby. Lauren is this person who looks to space. She um, thought about the astronaut that died on Mars. She talked about the moon station. And I think she truly believes that Earthsea is the, the, the thing that will spread the human race to other planets, like you said. I, that's my prediction, that little community reaches the stars. But I, yeah, I think so. I, pretty sure I'm not right. Yeah, and I, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking of the North Star. That she looks to the stars, and they, they, they go north. And I, I suppose that's a bit of a trope in sci-fi, especially apocalyptic uh, visions, where the they all people often head north, and, and yes. maybe that's but it's a North yes. Star in that sense. And so we have that maybe embedded in our own code in some way. It's a bit of an archetype for us that people follow the North Star and it's reliable. But also, if global warming is continues, the North is going to continue to look better and better. There's going to be some serious beachfront property in Canada and Iceland and <laughs> Greenland. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. But the same could be said of the South in some ways, although it's pretty hot, right? Yeah, I was thinking that there are a lot of stories that, okay, we're going to go south of the border and you know, that kind of thing, but there are plenty of them that, that go north. I guess and in this case, I think going north is to, well, to get to get the climate and also to get the 
politics. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think if you with, with the these motifs of slavery, that those there's certainly parallels there with heading north to escape is insufferable conditions. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Absolutely. In the North for some groups. She's, well, she's certainly a, a godlike figure in many ways with her hyper empathy, this ability to, that's a supernatural. If anything, this, this in some ways I think is, and it's sci-fi often does, right? And we find that it veers or, or intertwines with fantasy uh, often. And he has this fantastical ability to feel what others are feeling, what's called hyper empathy. And when we talked about this earlier, you you uh, said that you think that Olivia Butler should have done more with this in the story. I like to talk about the hero's journey, and uh, this is certainly a story that fits well with the hero's journey. So many ways it fits the hero's journey, and, and often in the hero's journey you get a hero, and the hero is often uh, Christ-like, I guess some kind of sacrifice or death of themselves that would help others. and. She certainly cares about others, and she has her disciples. I expected it would be the hyper-empathy that would help her save others. I was expecting that, and maybe that'll happen in the sequel, and maybe I'll read that. I'm not sure yet, but and this idea might stretch over the series. And I think you'd noted that she died before she finished the last one, but yeah. uh, the butler died. But I, I just thought that the hyper-empathy itself, that she would be perhaps in a situation, in a moment of conflict with some group like they are at times, and that she would be able to feel someone's pain and maybe develop the skill in a way where she almost has telepathy so that she might understand the reasons why someone was in so much pain or looking to hurt someone and that she would be able to speak to that pain and empathize in a way that would cause them to relieve the conflict in some way, to alleviate the feeling. And instead that doesn't happen. Like they're confronted by these two guys at some point, once they're on their junior journey north. And I think one has a knife or they're pretty threatening. And in the end, she kind of just pulls out a gun and that ends the conflict. And that just, I had me wondering about the parable itself and what lessons are we to take from this this story? Do, do you... what, what you were saying is is true, and I believe that she could have developed that a little bit more too, but maybe we're looking in the wrong place. Maybe where she was developing those skills and using them was with the group she was traveling with, especially around when they were talking about religion and how that all could fit with someone who had this superpower. But throughout the whole book, she didn't feel it was a superpower at all. She felt it was a curse and wanted to you know, run away from it. It seems to be the thing that she must overcome rather than what gives her power. I think a lot of times with a hero's journey, or a coming of age story. And, maybe, and this works in some ways like a buildings roman kind of thing. And yet she typically someone comes to some sort of self-understanding that allows them to transcend that, that burden, right? That they carry or, or yes. that they have. And I, I guess I just yes. didn't feel like she quite does that here but again maybe she does that in the second the sequel i don't know nothing about this people yeah i made a mistake i read the the uh wikipedia summary of, of the sequel we'll say spoiler alert and then go for it i'm not ready for it yet <laughs> okay okay yeah i want to come back to some of these sequels we've been reading like uh hyperion oh yes that was one of those books that that guy mentioned as well and yeah yeah i'm kind of i kind of want to revisit hyperion at some point we should we should i, I don't know i think you're into that as well oh you didn't you read part of the sequel i did so, i did because i couldn't stand having oh no i can't remember the name of the character that the dad who brought his daughter to the cave the time caves has some input to find out what's going to happen yeah, that's the, what the second book started in a different, whole different place, and it was going to take a long time to get to that. So I haven't found time to do that. But I really like that story, but there are parts of it that I, I found hard to get through. But that's another story. 
We're talking about the parable of the sower. I think we've reached a time where we have to talk about our list of favorite sci-fi elements, devices. I gotta say, Eric, I, I struggle with this one. I, I don't know if you noted them better than me, but there weren't many. What do we, all those things, and I, and look, I. Okay, I'll uh, give you my list. I'll give you my list and then we can argue well, about let me, it. Let me, let tell me, me it's... Before you do that, let me just say this, cause I, I just, I don't know, if I don't, if I don't write this, I hope somebody else does, but I often think about what I'd, what I'd write if there were fan fiction. And, and to oh. me, I want a little short story fan fiction of Keith's, that apartment that Keith is staying in and all the toys, a several pager about all the toys in, in Keith's, I don't know. What Keith's Lair. Gang, gang and maybe, yeah, Keith's Lair. And maybe, maybe where did they get this tech? Is, is this just a, like a, a scratch of the tech that is out there? And they got this tech from the communities that are the safest, right? That, that can support stuff like that. I, I remember Lauren, early in the story, Lauren's talking to her mother, stepmother about the stars and how you know, that's so meaningful to her. And then they looked at the city lights slowly over the, the next weeks, starting to blink off, you know, sections blinking off. And they, mm-hmm. they lost their power. And then, and then the, the ones down, the, they lost their power. There's still some going on in the city, and that makes them feel safer, that they're still going somewhere. Isn't that so true today? I think we think of here, I, I am in Lima, and you look out at outside of the, the central districts here, it looks like yeah, pretty similar if you've seen images of the favelas in uh, Brazil. And I think, you know, that's the case in so many places across the Latin America, Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, a lot of places in China where you look out and it's just uh, ramshackle housing, really people struggling. I know during COVID-19, this moment that we're in now with COVID-19, we didn't talk a whole lot about that, this pandemic that people have to, they just are doing whatever they can to survive. They have to go out. They, They don't have the money or the access to delivery and they don't have even running water at home necessarily. They've got to go out for water and go out all the time for groceries and try to go out for some kind of work, right? Or sell things. And the river of humanity, just all the people struggling. Yeah. It just made me think about that. I think that's so difficult. Anyway, it is. Yeah. Sci-fi device. Okay. So you've got, you've got Keith's, Keith's uh, playroom and they, the new designer drugs that can give people superpowers and then the outposts on the moon and Mars. Uh, and then they have the astronomy finding habitable planets. That's my list. I don't know if I quite caught exactly what there's some kind of ring device, I think some kind of, and then a virtual reality device. I think that was in Keith's uh, lair. That's, that exists today, but I, I think he was, you know, just talking about seeing things you've never seen. And I think I can imagine, but maybe that's an orcs and crake kind of moment where we can't imagine what all people have access to or are doing online or the ways in which people might sacrifice themselves to, to have food on the table in the future. I think a number of films where in the future people are in situations where they're online and someone's paying them to, to perform tasks or do things. Um, and they get more money by the more likes or hearts that float up on, on the screen. Yeah, and it could um, be you know, some like, there's some, yeah, it sounds like some out of Black uh, Mirror. Yes. There's a film, and I'm trying to forget the, who the, the character, I forget the, the actor's name, he's Australian, and he's in a, a film, is it just called like Player or something, where he he's like a soldier and they can be played by somebody else. They fight real people and kill real people in order to supposedly their sins will be reduced or removed. You know, they'll be freed. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Yeah. Maybe some there's there's moments here where it has me thinking a little bit about Ready Player One in some form where there's just probably people living in trailer parks stacked on top of each other. And there's these virtual worlds that people might be a part of. There's a a Ready Mm. Player Two coming out. I don't know if you saw that sequel. Ready Player Two. Yeah. No. Yeah, I just saw that. Probably on Apple TV, right? No, it's a book. You're going to have to get an Apple TV box. (laughs) The book's coming. Oh, a book. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was good. I like that. I like that book. Yeah. We didn't realize it was one of ours, was it? 
Was that an early one? Uh, no, I think it was before we, we started this, but it sure should be included in it. I certainly enjoyed the 80s references. Anyway, yeah, a short list of elements and devices here. We felt like it is science fiction for now. Maybe at times in a foreboding kind of way, we, we hope it doesn't become realistic fiction. I, yeah, I would recommend it. Certainly glad I read it, although it's dark. What do you think? You are a fan of apocalyptic uh, novels. Yeah. And I'd have to be dragged into it because I'm a reluctant horror fan. No, I, I don't know. I Dark things like this tend to scare me a little bit. And some people like that. They like to be scared. But when I'm scared like this, I just see, oh my God, this is this could really happen. God, now, now what do I need to do? Right. I, I hear survive. you. I hear you. Well, we, we, do I need to go pack a go bag? And we've looked at the, uh, yeah, should we start? Right. Dude, that's a way to end it. What are you going to put in your, how, if we're, <laughs> yeah, how do we wrap this up? Now that we, now we've decided the world's coming to an end, what's going to go in your prepper bag? <laughs> yeah. Or we, well, I, I, you, in, in uh, way back when I worked in a, a, a bookstore, one of the books that I bought there is Edible Plants. So that would go in, a book about edible plants. And then I would have this argument until I actually did or did not put a gun in my bag. I'm so conflicted. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Hmm. Put it in, don't put it in. A knife, food, and clothing, of course, in case, uh, just like in the story she said, Look, if I, it's the middle of the night and I have to run out of the house with my go bag, I need a change of clothes. So put some clothes in there. And then, I don't know, a radio, a, a, ra a crank radio, no batteries, crank flashlight, maps, nothing on devices because devices won't work, right? Yeah, you'd assume that, and yeah. Google Maps won't work, so you take your own maps. Gosh, where would you even find a map? in the future yeah you have to find out yeah when i see maps in a bookstore the last time i was in oh what's one of those famous bookstores or the popular bookstores it starts with a b i think like barnes and uh, something else anyway they had a section that in their travel section they also had maps and i, I looked at that and i thought wow i haven't seen a map a real map in a long time yeah yeah, yeah it's true yeah i miss those days i like reading a map However, I was in Bangkok near the temples, the, the King's Palace, and we'd just gotten some money at the ATM and we whipped out our map because we didn't you know, Google Maps, not then. And we whipped out our map when this tip driver just down the way, he said, hey, because the, the map was the uh, giveaway that we were tourists and not, we didn't know what was going on. And so we had just read about this scam the, the week before, but... The guy was good. He says, oh, no, the palace isn't open. I'll take you to a jewelry store, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, the story goes down from there. Oh, yeah. We as an early a young traveler in Thailand. That was just par for the course because it was cheaper that way. They get their little cut for taking all these tourist stores. And then, and then you put up with that, so for a cheaper rate. And that was the way we did it on our budget, just knowing that it happened. But I still felt like really uncomfortable going into a store and knowing I wasn't going to buy anything and uh, just feeling guilty. Even though I didn't do anything, I just didn't want any jewelry. Yeah, strange feeling. I, yeah, it'd be pretty similar. I, I guess I would, I mean, I certainly would put in some kind of water purification. Oh yeah, that she had that, yes. That's a must have. Um, I don't know, Ziploc bags always come in useful. Probably a knife. Yeah, a lot of yeah trail mix of some kind. That's yeah. What else? Dried fruit. First aid. First aid kit. Yeah, first aid would be good. But boy, I'll tell you, if I was in that world, I think I would pack a gun. Yeah, I don't want to be walking around empty-handed in a world with I don't know cannibals or some kind of thing where you could end your own life if you had to. Um, it's uh, horrifying. Yes. Uh, what else could you bring that somebody else might want that you could trade? Ooh, trading items. Oh, money. Money was still good in that, that, that world, but and it might be some precious metals or something. Yeah, spare pair of Yeah. Now we're talking about a small pole truck. 
coming out of the backpack. <laughs> Get all your stuff in there and pull it in the wagon. Yeah, I don't know. I think about those, you know, guys in Vietnam, what they had to carry. My dad said they would, yeah, he always wanted a spare socks. So they used to fold up the boxes of things in a way that they could slide it in the back of their backpack to provide a little more padding when they would, you know, so they would take up the boxed, any kind of boxed uh, rations and they would fold those up and, and then slide the folded up box, the boxes into the, yeah, the part of their bag between, between, yeah, the, between their the bag and their backs to create some. Okay. Okay. All right. So next up, we are reading World War Z, we decided. World War Z. World yes, War Z. I, I've, already, I'm already a few pages into it and I'm liking it a lot. Cool. I like the way it's written. All right. So World War Z is next. If any of you want to uh, read that along with us, we'll be talking about that in the future, uh, a future episode. And um, of course, leave your comments. We always like to hear from anyone who is out there listening. Yeah. What? Uh, anything you want to add? Any uh, questions you might have? Anything you think we overlooked? What's in your go bag? Yeah, share what's in your prepper bag. Yeah, what else? What, what, what do we forget for our prepper bags? Or what does everybody need? What would you carry? What would be the one personal item? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a question. Where would you go? Would you head north? Mm-hmm. Would you go anywhere? All right, War Z. Looking forward to it. Uh, okay. Very excited. All right, take care my friend and pull it back there's always that that feeling that you should look back and we want to look back on on what we've accomplished but in this this instance I think walking ahead is a good idea yeah walk fast <laughs>